welcome to this week's episode of The Versatile Writer with me, Sarah Bannum. The Versatile Writer aims to provide help and support for like-minded writers. Some of you know I run a book review group. We are an intimate group of cherry-picked reviewers, just seven of us currently, and the books we receive are from Pen and Sword Books and White Owl Books. I've been running the group now for a few years and, as a collective, we have reviewed several hundred books. Each review is posted on my business Facebook page, For the Love of Books, every Friday morning. From there it is shared to my personal page, Sarah Bannum, my Twitter account, at SJBWrites, and my Instagram page, s.j.bannum. It occurred to me recently that it would be awesome to speak to one or two of the authors of the books I've reviewed, so I contacted the publisher to organise this. Today's podcast is my interview with the author of The Legacy of Anne Frank, Gillian Walnes Perry. Before I play the interview, I thought I'd read out my review to give you some context. The Legacy of Anne Frank, Gillian Walnes Perry, published by Pen and Sword Books. From a chilling and disturbing prologue, this non-fiction book opens with the untimely and tragic death of a teenage girl in Auschwitz. However, despite this opening, instead of looking at her death, the book focuses on her life and chronicles the legacy teenager Annalise Marie Frank left behind. The first two chapters give an abridged idea of life surrounding young Anne Frank and then intricate details about her father Otto. Chapters afterwards detail how her story was opened up to the world. Taking on board how important the contents of this book are makes it so much harder to give it justice by way of a review. But this book isn't only about the girl, it shows how far-reaching her legacy goes. All the countries and all the people the words in her diary touched through topics like racism, politics, isolation and murder which surrounded Frank and millions like her. Readers across the globe, through her infamous diary, later the Anne Frank Trust, and then the Anne Frank in the World Travelling Exhibition, are educated about the Holocaust. Then Frank's legacy takes them a stage further as people from countries who considered it far and distant now understand it as real and present. These countries are as far afield as the Ukraine, Latin America, Argentina and India. Famous names have spoken about the topics included in Frank's legacy because they've experienced them too. Nelson Mandela was one speaker and Audrey Hepburn another, as she lived in the same country at the same time as Anne Frank, yet witnessed the Holocaust from a very different angle. A powerful read. It's probably useful to read the diary of Anne Frank beforehand, or at very least afterwards. I caught up with Gillian via Zoom recently and asked her about her experience with the Anne Frank legacy and how she came to write the book. Um, I've got an interview today with Gillian Walls Perry, MBE, author of The Legacy of Anne Frank. Welcome to the versatile writer, Gillian. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks so much for agreeing to this. It's really good to actually meet you as well after reading the book and then meeting the author as well. It's really, really nice. So today we're talking about your book, um, The Legacy of Anne Frank, and also about writing as well. Um, any tips that you can offer for non-fiction writers? So first of all, tell me a bit about yourself and why you came to write The Legacy of Anne Frank. <laughs> okay. In 1990, 
Um, I got together with a group of people who were family and friends of the late Otto Frank and Frank's father uh, to form an educational charity in Anne Frank's memory in Britain. And this came about uh, due to the fact that I had been invited in 1988 to help stage the Anne Frank travelling exhibition in my hometown of Bournemouth. And it was very exciting. I was one of those people that, you know, gets involved with things. So I'm sort of called if things need doing. And I'd been involved in several exhibitions in the town. And uh, the person who asked me uh, was a great friend, David Suttendorp. And his father had been a friend of Otto Frank's in, from Amsterdam. And he said, um, look, I've heard there's this new travelling exhibition that started uh, in Britain. It came in 1986 and I'd love to bring it to our hometown. Um, would you help? And I said, oh, yes, I'd love to do that. So we formed a committee and uh, nine months later, the Anne Frank in the World Exhibition came to our hometown. And actually, it wasn't even staged in the town centre. It was in the Art College, which was now part of Bournemouth University campus, which is very big, uh, about two miles out of the town centre. Nonetheless, in three weeks, we had 10,000 visitors. For a town the size of Bournemouth is, is quite sizable. And I thought, oh my goodness, um, I really would love to carry on doing this. So I, uh, later that year in the autumn, I put myself on a plane to Amsterdam um, and went to meet the director of the Anne Frank House. Uh, people do tell me that Hutzpah is my middle name. So um, I uh, sat in his office and convinced him that he needed a British representative to keep the Anne Frank exhibition touring the UK. And for my sins, I was appointed the uh, British representative of the Anne Frank House. And, and then, as I mentioned just now, a group of people, including David Suttendorp and uh, another friend of Otto Frank's, plus Anne Frank's posthumous stepsister, step Eva Schloss, who was Otto Frank's stepdaughter by virtue of the fact that um, her mother married Otto Frank after their liberation from Auschwitz. Uh, both Otto, of course, had lost his wife and his two daughters. Eva's mother had lost her husband and beloved son. And uh, Anne had, and Eva had played together uh, in the um, development that they lived in in southern Amsterdam before both families had gone into hiding. And uh, so Anne, uh, Eva, as a survivor, a very young survivor, 15 years old, she was a direct contemporary of Anne, and her mother miraculously survived Auschwitz together. It was very unusual for two members of one family to survive Auschwitz. Uh, she recognised Mr. Frank on the journey home from Auschwitz and introduced him to her mother. And um, and then after the war, when they were trying to rebuild their lives and, of course, grieving for their families, um, they got together and eventually Mr. Frank and Eva's mother married. And so Eva became Mr. Frank's stepdaughter. She adored him. She adored him as her stepfather. And uh, and henceforth, uh, Anne Frank's posthumous stepsister. So she was another of the co-founders of the Anne Frank Trust. And it actually, Sarah, it's, it all started in my home, in my, in my study in, um, in Wimborne, in Dorset. And, um, and then I uh, moved to London and uh, we opened an, an office in Kentish Town near Camden. And when I retired five years ago, the trust had grown to 35 members of staff. 
I mean, really working, taking educational programs and Anne Frank exhibitions into schools, prisons, uh, and communities in some of the most challenging areas of the UK. But because of my work very closely with the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam over the course of, you know, two and a half decades, I had got to hear all along about remarkable stories from all over the world and in some of the most surprising places you could imagine. And I thought, well, my colleagues at the Anne Frank House who are doing this work, you know, we're handling uh, Britain and Ireland, they're handling the rest of the world, their team. And, you know, they come back from doing a project in a, a remote place in South America or in India or in Eastern Europe. And then their desk is completely full and they get on with the next project and the next project and the next project. And although, of course, they write superficial reports, um, no one had actually chronicled it in a book. This incredible work that had been, to, been done all around the world in Anne Frank's memory. And I thought someone's got to do it. I'm now retired and this is my retirement project. And so that's really the impetus uh, that I just sat down. And it, of course, it was a great transition from my working life to my retired life. By the way, my retired life is not very retired anymore, but <laughs> um, I'm still on the mission. Um, <laughs> simply just not running a staff of 35 people. And, and I sat down and wrote the book, submitted it in uh, 2017, and it was published in the summer of 2018. Right, actually, that um, that fits in very nicely because my next question to you, I reviewed your book through Pen and Sword in August of that year. Did so you? It was that quick. And one day we'll get together and I'll sign it for you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. That would be really lovely. Thank you. One thing that jumped out at me was that Otto Frank, Anne's father, didn't think her diary would be of interest to other people. And obviously that's not what, what happened at all. Um, what do you think about him saying that? It was understandable. In fact, Anne writes herself, um, one of her first entries, she writes, um, who on earth would be interested in the, 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 the musing of a 13-year-old schoolgirl? Um, she wrote it herself. But uh, there are two issues here. Um, Otto's personal issue. And also let's first discuss the issue of the Netherlands immediately post-war after its liberation in May 1945. Um, the Dutch had suffered terribly, particularly in the last winter of that war. Of course, they were occupied by the Nazis from May 1940. But the last winter was particularly grueling for the Dutch people because um, the, the Germans were actually... Um, stopping food supplies coming in in retaliation for acts of resistance by the Dutch resistance. Um, they were um, stopping fuel getting to the Dutch population. And I mean, there are terrible stories about the Dutch themselves actually resorting to eating tulip bulbs to get through that, that what they called it the hunger winter. So uh, they got through this hunger winter, the Dutch people, and they've been um, liberated in May by the Canadians, by the way. The whole atmosphere, you can imagine, was very much of, we must move forward. We must build and repair and heal and move forward. And so the mood was not necessarily at that time, in the immediate aftermath of the liberation, for reading testimonies. 
Uh, even though Anne had started editing her diary, following a BBC radio broadcast by the Dutch education minister in exile in London uh, in 1944, appealing for Dutch people under occupation to keep journals and diaries that could be um, published after the war as a record for what they were suffering under occupation. So that's when Anne started editing her diary with the view that hers was going to be published. So um, Otto felt the zeitgeist that was going on in the Netherlands at that time. But nonetheless, he was conflicted because he knew that his daughter, his greatest wish was to have been a published writer. And so what he did, Sarah, he actually took the diary and he showed it to several people, including actually Eva's mother and including David Suttendorp's father, who actually took one look at it and said, ah, who's earth going to want to read a teenage diary? Forget it, you know. Um, but um, there were people whose, whose views he trusted. And it was actually a Dutch literary critic called Jan Romain, a friend of Otto's, who read it and actually published an article in the local newspaper Het Parool, uh, entitled the Kinders Kinderstam, the voice, the voice of a child, in stating that everybody should read this little girl's diary as a testament to the suffering in war. And uh, on the strength of that, Otto was approached by a publisher, a Catholic publisher, a small Roman Catholic publisher called Contact, who agreed to publish it, test the water, in a small edition of, of 1,500 copies. Now, again, um, Otto was conflicted because um, on the one hand, um, he knew that Anne was a very feisty, very candid, very frank girl. She, she, she actually, there were no holds barred with our, our Anne. But on the other hand, he wanted to preserve the memory of his late wife, who, who died of starvation and disease in Auschwitz, just actually three weeks before its liberation, and the other people in hiding, uh, the other two families that had been in hiding with the Frank family, who'd all died, all been killed. And so Anne had not written very favourably about those people, particularly the adults. Um, with Margot, her older sister, there was the normal teenage sibling rivalry, you can imagine. So um, Margot comes out very well in the diary, but you know she is it, she is the butt of a lot of Anne's frustrations. But notably, the adults, particularly her mother, um, they they had a very temperamental relationship. Uh, Anne was always very frustrated with her mother. Uh, she writes, you know, I, when I grow up, I'm going to do a lot more than mother ever did. Um, and so Otto wanted to preserve the memory of those people. The publisher, being a good Catholic publisher, also decided that a lot of what our candid Anne wrote about in her diary as a, as a teenager who was transitioning from childhood into adolescence and puberty and all that goes with it, you know, the changes in your body, your uh, emerging sexual feelings, she wrote about it all. Um, they didn't think it was suitable reading. So between those two issues, Otto trying to preserve uh, the memories of, of those that had perished, that were close to him, and the publisher deeming that a lot of what Anne wrote was unsuitable reading, one third of the diary was actually removed. 
So when it was published in uh, June 1947, uh, it was one third less of the diary, the editions of the diary that we now read, all put back in 1995. By December of that year, Sarah, it was in a second edition already. By February of the following year, there was a third edition. And as they say, the rest is history. Yes, they do, yes. <laughs> Certainly when you pick it apart like that and dissect the reasons why, that's, that's fascinating. Well, actually, there is one other um, one issue that uh, I should mention regarding publishing books in um, immediate post-liberation in the Netherlands. There was a severe paper shortage. So um, it was just a pure fluke that the diary got published because a friend of Otto's happened to be working in the stationery department of a government department. And she was able to get some stationery, get some paper and uh, deliver it to contact who were able to publish the diary. It all fell into place. Um, Perhaps you'd like to give a short reading? Yes. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to take up the story on the the day that Anne received the little red check notebook, which became her diary, for her 13th birthday on the 12th of June 1942. Now, to contextualise this, um, the hiding place where they were going to find themselves, the secret annex, above Otto Frank's workplace and the Prinzengracht in Amsterdam, had already been prepared just in case a call-up notice came for Margot Frank, the older sister, who was by then 16. And the German occupiers were actually calling up all Jewish young people between the ages of 16 and 40 to report to go to work camps in the East in Germany. Very few of these young people that actually went and obeyed the instructions to report ever returned. So um, Otto and Edith Frank were aware of this and they started creating the hiding place. By uh, the 12th of June 1942, the call-up notice hadn't yet arrived. So Anne actually had a nice birthday, 13th birthday with friends. So I'm going to, as I say, take up the, 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 the story on the day that she receives her diary. Anne started writing in her notebook on the day she received it. Her first words were, I hope I'll be able to confide everything in you, as I've never been able to confide in anyone, and I hope you'll be a great source of comfort and support. She had no idea on that day that in three weeks' time the diary was about to indeed become a vital source of comfort and support. She goes on to describe her birthday party and all the other gifts she received, And over the next few days, she shares her privately held views about her school friends. On this matter, she doesn't hold back, using adjectives such as stuck up, sneaky and vulgar for some of her unfortunate targets. By the 20th of June, Anne has given her new paper confidant the name Kitty after one of the characters created by her favourite author. Kitty is to become her friend, a surprising confession from a girl who says she has about 30 friends and a throng of boy admirers who can't keep their eyes off me. But with her human friends, she feels the talk is superficial and about ordinary everyday things. Kitty will be her true friend. Paper will be her intimate confidant. And anyway, no one is ever going to read it. Three weeks after Anne had started her diary, On the afternoon of Sunday, the 5th of July, the doorbell on the Frank family's apartment unexpectedly rang. 
It was a postman delivering the dreaded notice for 16-year-old Margot to report at midnight for transportation to a work camp. According to the notice, Margot would be permitted to take a number of specified items in a single suitcase, which had to have first and last name, date of birth and the word Holland written on it. In a foreboding of the true fate of the deportees, this was explained to be important because the owner's suitcase would be sent by a separate train. The hindsight of history gives us a grim insight into these bureaucratic instructions. By this time, not only Auschwitz, but Belgets and Chelno concentration camps were fully functioning in carrying out the extermination of Jews. The very next day, early on the morning of the 6th of July, the Frank family left them a Veda plane home together and trudged in the pouring rain across the city to the Prinzengracht offices of Mr Frank. They were each wearing several layers of clothing and carrying one satchel, plus another bag laden with essential supplies. The city was still dark and people were scuttling about to get out of the downpour, so no one would have taken much notice of the sodden group of people who were leaving their home for good. To reach the stairs to the hiding place involved slipping through a door that had been carefully concealed by a strategically placed wooden bookcase. The bookcase had been filled with the normal office paraphernalia of document folders so as not to arouse any suspicions from Mr Frank's office workers. Even to this day, all visitors to Anne Frank's hiding place access it by stepping behind this bookcase. I must admit, it's very hard to... I have got questions for you, but it's very hard to ask questions that justify what happened. It's, it's, so, it's so touching and so poignant what happened. It's, it does take you a little bit, doesn't it? It kind of grabs you a little bit. Well, a lot more than a little bit, actually. As this is a, primarily a writing-related podcast, what advice and tips can you give new writers of non-fiction? A couple of things. I, I guess with my book... Um, it wasn't a book that I had to sit down and research because um, it was all there in my head over the, the past 25 years that I'd been doing this work. And I had things written down anyway. Um, but also what was joyous about it was interviewing people from all around the world and as the, well, I, when I was doing, we didn't have Zoom actually, so it was Skype, um, and and hearing their their recollections. And you've read the book that it it is a book about people. It's about people, the work they've done, the impact that Anne Frank has had on young people around the world, but also about these incredible educators that have taken the story of Anne Frank through the exhibitions and education programs to the most remote and surprising parts of the world. So it was joyous to be able to sit down and capture these people's stories and that they knew that they were going, it was going to be in print. And actually that the book is on sale at the Anne Frank house. Uh, it's also on sale at the, um, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, DC, which is fabulous. Um, so a couple of things. Um, when I submitted the book, I'd been told and I signed up to a contract of 100,000 words. But because I had so many stories to tell Sarah, uh, it turned out to be 150,000 words. I had a great advantage at home because my husband is a brilliant editor. That was his profession. 
um, even though, of course, the publishing company had um, uh, recruited, uh, obviously, commissioned an editor to work on the book. So what happened was they contacted me, the publisher, and they said, um, we really feel this is such an important story that uh, we're going to go with the full 150,000 words. Um, so it's quite a large book, as you know, because you, you've got it in your hand. Uh, it's large sort of in, in size, um, but it's 300 pages as well. Um, so I was surprised and they said it, it, it's been so well ed edited by my husband, even though it was his second language, um, that we don't really have very much to do. So if you've got an important story to tell, you don't necessarily have to keep to the word count that the publishers have, have suggested. So um, if it's there, if they don't want to, they don't want it, they will red pen it. But my case, it was like 50% more than they'd actually required, than they'd actually asked for. So, um, so that's something. The other thing I would say as well is, even though it's not going necessarily be uh, a perhaps a millions selling millions uh, you know you might not be a well-known name um, it's not uh, it's not necessarily a fiction story that's going to be turned into a movie what have you be proactive yourself in supporting the marketing team of the publishers giving them leads giving them hints um, reminding them if there's a significant anniversary because they're, 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 they've got a pile of books on their desk you know every month there's a new pile of books coming in for them to you know to start doing a campaign you keep being pro proactive lots of social media and always uh, you know tag your publishing company whatever you're um, whatever you're putting on social media they, they love to see it just dropping them an email to remind them if there perhaps there's a significant anniversary coming up, something linked to perhaps a place, something's happening in a place um, that's mentioned in the book. Just be sort of eagle-eyed of any news items, um, because mine, of course, is a historical book, and Anne Frank is such a well-known name. One can link it to many different sort of uh, war, Holocaust, um, education, all kinds of... Um, uh, uh, things that can can crop up and of course it, it covers the whole world so one can link it to places as well so my book's you know almost three years old now but I'm still proactive on your social media perhaps if you've got photos in the book stick a photo of the book on your social media um, perhaps link it to a news story um, get it out on LinkedIn get it out on um, Instagram and uh, Twitter just just don't rely on the communications and marketing team of your publisher. You help them, you make suggestions of where you think it should be placed. Continue to be proactive. I found out, actually, believe it or not, um, I found out that there was an Australian website last year during the pandemic, lock, in lockdown, the height of the lockdown, that actually mentioned that my book uh, was one of the top selling books in Australia last year. Um, because people were sort of making those connections to the situation of Anne Frank, not, of course, not in the Holocaust, but the situation of her being a teenager in lockdown, if you like. 
Um, I, I, my mantra throughout the lockdown has always been, yes, but there are no Nazis waiting for us outside the door. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, there's, there's a hidden enemy floating around in the air. But, uh, you know, at least if you step out the door, you know, you, you might not be arrested and taken off to a camp and murdered. So um, just be proactive as, and be opportunistic and remind your publishing company, do it yourself or just send them a little hint if there's something coming up that they should be thinking about. Yeah, actually, I, I agree with both those. But the, the last one you said, be proactive, it's, it's very useful. If you've got a book out there, it's, you know, you said yours is three years old now. I would never have said that, but quite clearly it is three years old now. It's gone so quickly. Um, and, you know, so many things do come up in, um, you know, topics come up newsworthy. And it, it's so obvious when you think about it that some of the themes that you cover are still happening today. So, you know, tag along to it, tag on to it so that you, you can highlight your book still. I think it's a, a, a brilliant way to do it, really. What's something you learned about writing while writing this book? Well, obviously, to cut yourself off when you're actually writing and, as they say, get into the zone, um, it was easy for me because I was so excited and enthusiastic that I was going to chronicle this story. Um, and perhaps when you get a bad day, because you know what we're like as writers, we're procrastinators, aren't we? Um, my daughter actually has published three successful books. She said that, that there will be days when you'll do anything rather to, to find an excuse not to sit down at the computer and write. Um, yeah. Even sort of dust the skirting boards. That sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, in 2018, we both had a book out in the same year. So that was that was really exciting. Um, but. Actually, um, if you aren't in that mood, just give in to it uh, because uh, it will come back. And I guess uh, maybe the obvious thing is keep a notepad by the, by the bed because these things come into your head at sort of four o'clock in the morning. And if you don't write them down, uh, they will just go round and round and round in your head and you won't get another wink of sleep. Um, so keep that notepad there. Uh, I'm actually, believe it or not, writing another book at the moment. I've been commissioned by another publisher to do another book, which is um, slightly different. Uh, it's on the topic of the social history of English afternoon tea. And the reason for that, Sarah, is because it's one of my lectures. Um, when I started lecturing on cruise ships after my retirement, I uh, was asked to expand my portfolio from Anne Frank. I mean, everyone's obviously interested in Anne Frank, but sometimes you have several days at sea. And so you've got to have a portfolio of different lectures. And afternoon tea was my passion. I wanted to know more about it. It's like one of these things that you take for granted in your life, but you never think, well, where did this all come from? How did this start? How did we start drinking tea? Where did that come from? So I started lecturing on it. And it's a very popular lecture. Um, prior to the pandemic, I was doing it in uh, historic houses, stately homes and hotels and for family celebrations. Method to my madness, because wherever I lecture, of course, there's always an afternoon tea supplied. Um, so I give the lecture and then afternoon tea. But um, I suddenly thought, you know, I've been doing this and throughout the pandemic, I've been doing these, as well as the Anne Frank lectures for nearly a year, well, over a year now. And um, maybe I should gather it up into a book. So it's a slightly different book because it's not my history and my friends and colleagues history. So this requires uh, expansion 
in terms of research on my lecture, because I'm obviously limited in time to a lecture. Um, and so it's going to be a beautifully illustrated sort of popular gift book. But um, it, it's a different different way of working, but equally enthusiastic. And what I do is um, I go through the chapters and I write into the chapters uh, my all the new stuff that I'm learning, just put it all into the chapters with, obviously my husband will help me <laughs> edit it as well, edit it down. Um, but just learning new things. But with this particular lecture, I'm also getting fantastic research from my lectures because people are giving me feedback. They're saying, did you know? And it's been a tremendous help. Did you know about this? Oh, no, I didn't. I'm going to go off and research that. And um, so people are helping me in my lectures. My, my lecture audiences are helping me to write the book. They're giving me their own sort of um, recollections and nostalgic memories of afternoon teas and things that they've had. So this is capturing sort of the social history of afternoon tea in, in a kind of a different way via my lectures. I can imagine what that book's going to look like straight away. I, I just want afternoon tea now. You've mentioned it so much. I just want to have some now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's very well. It's 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 actually very wide ranging topics. The topics even from what we wear to have what we wear to afternoon tea to uh, how doilies were invented, uh, tea dances, uh, all kinds of things are in there. That's going to be a really fun book. It's going to be a great fun book. I'll keep you very much posted on it. It's going to be out next spring, ready for the summer. So I'm looking forward to that. Shall we finish with another reading from uh, The Legacy of Anne Frank? Yes. I'm going to um, read a very unusual story, which surfaced in 1994. In the early days of the Anne Frank travelling exhibition, it was taken to South Africa. And it was actually just after... Uh, Nelson Mandela became elected to the first democratic president of South Africa, democratically elected. And Mr. Mandela came and opened the Anne Frank exhibition in Johannesburg in August 1994. And he told an astonishing story. Just four months after becoming president of the country that had imprisoned him for 27 years, Nelson Mandela opened the Anne Frank exhibition at the Museum Africa in Johannesburg. A small figure in a black and white geometric design shirt, Mr Mandela took to the stage in front of the gathered dignitaries. To the surprise and fascination of the audience, he explained that he had read the diary of Anne Frank while incarcerated on Robin Island for 18 of the 27 years of his imprisonment. It kept our spirits high and reinforced our confidence in the invincibility of the course of freedom and justice. He said that he had first read Anne's diary even before he went into prison, but felt that what he derived from books he'd read before his incarceration was totally different from what he received from the same book read while in prison. Mr Mandela went on to relate the astonishing story of what the prisoners had done at great personal risk to rescue Anne's diary when it had nearly been destroyed. Mr Mandela had set up what he has described as the Robin Island University, a learning forum for the prisoners to be well-equipped to continue the struggle for democracy on their long-awaited release. A group of political prisoners confined for decades in the harshest of conditions built a centre of learning not of bricks and mortar, 
but of intellectual debate. In a barren limestone quarry on a secluded island, lectures and animated discussions were carried out during the short periods of rest, despite the attentions of the warders who guarded the imprisoned men and oversaw their long days of labouring in the quarry. The lectures and debates took place in snake-infested caves around the quarry during the men's brief respite from breaking stones to take food and shade. One of the books they read and discussed had been Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. It had somehow found its way into the collection of books in the small prison library. Mandela had encouraged the prisoners to read her teenage writing as a testament to the strength of the human spirit. After several years, the little paperback book had been passed around and thumbed so much that its pages fell out and it became an incoherent and incomplete collection of papers. But the prisoners, avid for the message of hope for a better future that Anne envisioned, took turns to clandestinely copy out the pages by hand and collate them back together so that the younger prisoners could continue to draw strength from Anne's words. This was a dangerous act performed secretly by candlelight in the various cells at night. What happened to this volume we do not know, but it's one of the most remarkable examples of the place in history of Anne's diary. Wonderful, isn't it? How it brings so many people together. I mean, the book tells stories of, goes on to tell what happened in the townships of South Africa with young people um, working with the Anne Frank exhibition. what happened to uh, young people all over the uh, former Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe as they were becoming emerging from uh, communism, uh, stories of Japan, China, uh, Vietnam. I tell stories of Latin America, the street kids of Guatemala, um, countries like Chile and Argentina, where they had endured terrible dictatorships and the Anne Frank exhibition was taken to those countries immediately after the fall of those dictatorships and how it brought people together. Um, it's it's very wide-ranging. Absolutely is. And also I remember reading that um, Audrey Hepburn, when she spoke as well, and how she grew up in the same place and had a very completely different point of view of it all. Yes. You see, I've been very privileged to meet these people because I met Audrey Hepburn. She was one of my very first trustees, um, or patrons rather, of, of the Anne Frank Trust when I was starting out in 91. Sadly, she died in early 1993, tragically. Um, and so there's a chapter about Audrey Hepburn. I've been very privileged to meet Meep Heese, who was the uh, helper of the Frank family in hiding. And um, she found the diary after the family had been arrested and gave it kept it in her desk drawer to give back to Anne on Anne's return from the camps, but that was never to be. So it was Meep who gave it to Mr. Frank on the very day that he learnt from the Red Cross that his daughters had been killed. I spent a lot of time with Meep. We even together went to the 1996 Oscar ceremony in Hollywood to see the documentary that I had commissioned in 1994 on Anne Frank win uh, an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. So walking down the red carpet in Hollywood with Meep Geese was something magical. I spent much time with Buddy Elias, um, Anne Frank's first cousin, who she was so fond of as a a girl. Um, There's chapters about all these people in the book, as well as as chapters about all the incredible places in the world that Anne has had an impact. (laughs) That's all I can say really is, wow, because it's... It encompasses so, so much. Yes. So, 
Um, I think that's why the publisher couldn't cut couldn't cut it. <laughs> do thank you so much for your time today, Julian. I do really appreciate your time today. It's been so a great pleasure, Sarah. I hope this episode of The Versatile Writer has answered some of the questions you may have had about Anne Frank, or at least the legacy she left behind. I also hope that the tips Gillian gave about non-fiction books helped those of you writing in that genre. If you'd like to share your thoughts of the interview, non-fiction writing, or The Versatile Writer in general, you can do so on the podcast's Facebook page, The Versatile Writer Podcast Group. The link will be in the show notes, along with a link to Gillian's book on the Pen and Sword website. This podcast aims to provide help and support for like-minded writers, so thank you for listening to The Versatile Writer with me, Sarah Bannum. I'd be grateful if you shared and subscribed to this podcast.